With the story we are telling, the elements that resonate as it pertains to Billy Chase is that the deeper he got undercover, the more he started to unravel mentally. In a city like Bridgeport, Billy had targets. He had prey that he wanted to get at all costs. One of those targets was Mariano Sanchez, the leader of the number one family. In order to understand the number one family, and in order to understand the streets, I went directly to an individual who worked the street corners for that drug crew. When people watch television shows or movies that take place in the drug world, a lot of times the stories create caricatures. When you talk to someone that lived the life up close and personal, the nuances of what happened become more clear and more concise. Joel Gonzalez has lived inside Bridgeport all of his adult life, and his point of view was different from anyone you have heard thus far. Yeah, the hot spot in the west side always been like you know, on uh, State Street area between uh, Howard Avenue and Park Avenue, which is the area there. That's pretty much the area that I lived um, uh, from the time that we moved from P.T. Barnum, uh, from about 1970, around there. 1977, more exactly. 70, I spent five years in Puerto Rico, came back in 1977, and uh, we went you know, my family, you know, we were raised basically on State Street from 1977 to the present. I lived in that whole area there. That's always been the hot spot. That's where, uh, um, you know, where, where the good, the bad and the ugly uh, took place. Uh, that's where uh, after graduation, I graduated in 1984 from BASIC. After that, in 1984, that was the middle of a, of a recession. Uh, there was no jobs. It was really, you know, there was really nowhere to go, um, and I, from, from 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 you know from the, the 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 people that I grew up with on State Street, I was pretty much like the only one who had, by 1984, the only one who had graduated from high school. Um, most of them, uh, the great majority of them, were all you know they all dropped out of school. Many of them got involved in in drugs and trafficking and using and you know. Uh, and, and many of them went on to, to you know, to, 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 you know, this is 84. Keep in mind, this is this is right around the time that the movie uh, Scarface from Tony, with, with Tony Montana, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's when that movie came out. And I think um, that movie sort of like set everything, that everything in motion, you know, as far as uh, drug trafficking, cocaine trafficking in the streets went. Um, everybody wanted to be Tony Montana, and, you know, back in the 80s, you know, and, um, you know, I was one of them that I, I, I wasn't, you know, when I graduated in 84, I, you know, I was pretty much a virgin. Uh, I, I was a, a square. I wasn't into any of that, you know, but then <clears throat> you graduate from high school. There's nothing to do. There's no work, nothing around. Everybody, you know, is uh, um, driving cars and, 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 and you know, uh, dress up. Christian or fancy, you know, money and, you know, selling cocaine, you know, basically, you know, back then was main powder cocaine. Um, and, and that's where I, I, I got caught in between all that stuff. Uh, and that's where, you know, I, I got, I got to, um, 
you know, everybody that I grew up with, one of the main characters, one of the, the not main character, one of the people who were well-known uh, traffickers back in that era was Mariano Sanchez. And uh, I grew up with Mariano. Uh, we, we, we were from the same, from the same street, same neighborhood. But the story of the war on drugs, the highlight reel of it is always the kingpin, the guy with the cars, the clothes, the mythology. But like any machine, the low-level workers who churned out a working-class living has always fascinated me. There actually were working-class drug dealers, the guys that made a good living, but didn't live a crazy, lavish lifestyle. They were street soldiers on the front lines, getting dirty and in the action. When you decide it's, it's 84, you're leaving high school, and you sort of did you make a conscious decision that hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the drug trade? And how does that actually work at the street level? Listen, you know, I I where I come from and where all these guys that I grew up with, we had uh, one thing we had in common. A lot of us had in common. Most of us were from single parent home. Uh, most of us were being raised by our mothers. Some of them by their grandmothers. You know, um, Mariano was one of them. I say, I've never, you know, Mariano's. Carmen Fred was not Mariano's mother. He called her mom, but that was his stepmom. You know, um, you know. Um, I think that the, one of the things was single parent and poverty. Uh, in my case, my situation, for example, I had a younger brother. Uh, I had, you know, still alive. Uh, my younger brother was one of them that dropped out of school, um, and he went on and started selling for Mariano. Um, for, for the Sanchez crew, you know, number one family. So, um, you know, you, you, you know, you got to understand, for example, you know how many times I will come from school with my books, ready to go do homework and stuff like that and go home. Next thing you know, there's no lights. They cut off the lights. I, I recall one time, uh, for example, one time in a situation like that, you know, they had cut the light. And I remember that it was Mariano Sanchez who went and paid the bill and had the electricity restored at my house. Okay? That's the kind of person Mariano's always been, you know. Um, that's what, when Lenny wrote the book, and I seen, you know, when I read the book and all that, I said, damn, they demonized the number one family. Or Mariano, basically, number one family was not a mob thing. It wasn't, you know, the number one family came about the death it, it, this is how the name came about, Number One Family. It came out um, on State Street. Any drug crew always has an origin story or a singular event that sets in motion the building of legends or these street figures that were targeted by law enforcement. Coming out of the 1970s in many American cities, a lot of the drug dealers came out of community organizing backgrounds. They were the guys who had a political mind or saw the racism inside America and decided there was no justice. The system was rigged. And their way of rebelling was to create their own system. And that was gangster capitalism. One time in 19, I think it was 1985, Mariana had a little brother named Hedo, Geronimo. And he was, I think, crossing from the Duchess 
uh, hamburger place on State Street. And he crossed the street. He, died. He, he, he ran across the street. A car came, hit him, and killed him. Okay, he was killed uh, 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 there on State Street. So, you know, um, this is when Mariano was, his, 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 when the cocaine trade started, you know, he, he was starting to boom, or to boom, as we say, you know, that he, he, you know, he was really, it was really getting busy. It was, it was, you know, um, uh, and, and then Hedda was killed, uh, coming, coming, you know, crossing the street on State Street. Uh, and then during the funeral, um, Mariano's sister, uh, 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 Susie Sanchez, she, she decided, you know, she, you know, she, you know her and, and other family members decided that, you know, they would make t-shirts. You know, for the funeral with his picture, and and then you know she she was you know you know the the the, the camaraderie you know the, the coming together that that death brought um, brought a lot of people a lot of us who had beef who had who were fighting with each other who were you know uh, came together and and Susie was the one who who raised that number one family and and it stuck. You know, but it wasn't a number one family about like a mob family or anything like that. It wasn't intended, nothing like that. The teachers that were around, they were, they were photographed in the news about that. People walking around with number one family. It had nothing to do with drug trafficking. It had to do with, you know, the, the, the coming together of all the, all of us who were raised on the West Side, who, you know, who, who you know, who, you know, from the same neighborhood and all that. And we came together as a group, you know. Um, not everybody who were, Members or friends of the Nomon found not all of them were selling drugs. Not all of them were involved or anything like that. You know, um, you know. So, so, so that's that's how that came about. You know, you know that was you know everybody think that it was it was you know uh, the number one family thing came about. You know, the drug trafficking. It had nothing to do with drug trafficking or anything like that. It just 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 it just got entangled in it and all that and misinterpreted by the press. Sure, and and was the the number one family mostly guys who had family from Puerto Rico or 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 were no. Puerto Rican or did it or did no, it no, run uh, the uh, well, Yeah, well, at the beginning, you know, uh, in the beginning, well, keep in mind that back then, you know, like State area, State Street there was mainly Puerto Ricans. Uh, all of us who who were there, all of us who grew up together there, all of us were Puerto Ricans. It's an odd thing to think about that a drug crew could actually have branding, but it's no different than say Coca-Cola. The crew was branded, the Coke was branded. You had to have names and clothing that represented who you ran with. I also know that the media and the police are notorious for creating a narrative around a drug crew that maybe was based in half-truths. Any cop or prosecutor always likes to bolster a story, make it sound better, make them look better. It's just what happens in the drug game. No, it had nothing to do with family anywhere. It just, it was people here, you know, living in the West Side and, and in the neighborhood, State Street, Clinton, you know, Colorado Avenue, uh, that mainly in that area there. And, you know, people who always hung around or, or or we're always in that area there, you know, um, you know. But but uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a, 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 a. Mainly, mainly the members were Puerto Rican. Then around nineteen, I would say around eighty six, around there, mid eighty six. Um, 
uh, Mariano had one of his cousins was uh, Louis Roman. Papo. Papo was, uh, you know, when he went to Basic, he played football. He, you know, in the football teams were in a lot of blacks and all that. And he, 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 had, he was friends with a lot of blacks. I think, but it was Papo and, and you know who started bringing some of his black friends and introducing them. And then motorcycle was another thing. You know, number one family people member, some of them started getting motorcycles and all that. And then they would get together with other folks who had motorcycles, whether they were black or whatever, you know. Um, the number one family turned out to be your, you know, the Clinton crew turned out to be pretty much uh, a diverse group. We had whites, blacks, and Hispanics, and Puerto Ricans uh, mainly. Um, you know, you know, but um, it, it it was it started mainly as Puerto Ricans from that area there, and as you know, they popular. They became more popular with chicks, you know, bringing white girlfriends, and you know, before you knew it, it was it, color. It was really nothing about any color, you know. It was yeah. white, Hispanic. The most of the 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 uh, customers were white, you know. Um, you know, there was a huge, huge. Uh, 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 clientele of white folks from all over, you know, uh, Connecticut. You know, it wasn't just people from Bridgeport. People who come down from 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 all over Connecticut to go. You know, because you know you could go there. It was pretty much safe. You know, you could go in. It was quantity and quality, which is really the key. Uh, you know, you got good cocaine. You know, for a good price, and, and, and we were safe. You know. Um, in and out, you know. Um, it was always there. You know, it got to a point you could go there practically any time and get something, you know. Um, and yeah. what what was, you know, it's always interesting, right? I think people, most people's uh, intake of information from the war on drugs is probably from the mainstream media, Right. And and talking to someone like yourself who was there, what was your analysis specifically in Bridgeport of the drug trade and how it worked? And looking back on it now, you know, with with sort of a as we get older, we always have perspective. What was your analysis of it then, and and what is it now? Like any business, you need a thriving customer base, and the wealthy areas around Bridgeport have always funded the drug trade inside the city to a massive extent. Places like Darien, Greenwich, Westport, Fairfield, even Stanford. These are some of the most wealthy areas in the country, supported by Wall Street money and people who don't want to live in Manhattan. You can't fault entrepreneurs setting up a system to reach a thriving marketplace. There would be no war on drugs if huge amounts of America didn't shoot, snort, or smoke. It's that simple. One of the things that was different from back then that changed really the dynamics was the price of cocaine. Back then, there was a time when I was out there in the 80s, you know, uh, late 80s, where you know, you could connect. You connected with the right person. You could get a kilo of cocaine for twelve thousand dollars. You try finding a kilo of cocaine now for twelve thousand dollars. You're not gonna get it. You're not gonna find it. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that happened. That when the price of cocaine went up, boom. Uh, the, the, that's where you know it wasn't. It wasn't like a game that anybody can get into. You know. 
Um, when when Pablo Escobar was brought down, that was like pretty much the end of the era. The price of cocaine just shoot up, shot up to about you know back then it was. I think it's still the same from what I understand today. Kilo goes to about thirty, between twenty five thirty thousand dollars. I think it's it's it's, it's what yeah it's, maybe even more. Today. I mean I've heard yeah I I've heard I've heard yeah, yeah cocaine is is not uh, as cheap as it was you know back then you know in 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 the late eighties uh, mid eighties you know and so that was that kind of changed the dynamics you know but at the same time it 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 um it it you know it it, it uh you know, it, it sort of just, just, and then another thing was that for you know, I didn't know. For example, when I was when I was out there, I didn't. I used to wonder why, how, how the hell are these people able to sniff all this fucking coke so fast? And to show you how naive I was, I didn't know nothing about crack. You know, it turns out that in the mid '80s, you know, um. You know, a lot of the people who were buying the powder coke, the reason why they were buying so much and coming, the reason why Mariano, the Marianos of the world and Escobar made a lot of money was because they, it was a lot of that coke wasn't being sniffed. It was being cooked to smoke as crack. You know, and I didn't know that. Then I think like it was, you know, towards the end of the uh, 80s, uh, you know, around the 90s, the beginning of the 90s around there. Next thing you know, you start seeing uh, crack vials. You know, cocaine, the crack, you know, crack cocaine being sold, you know, went from the powder to the, to the coke, to the crack cocaine. That's where, where, where the crime and all that really went out of control. You know, it's like, uh, it, it, it was, it was, you know, I, I didn't know. And then that's when I was, you know, I, I, I got it. I said, oh, that's what it was. You know, you know, next thing, a lot of the people who used to buy cocaine from me at that time, I would see them around the neighborhood and all that buying crack. Buying the vials of the crack. Yeah, then, then that's when they hit me. I said, "Damn, that's why." You know, this motherfucker used to smoke this shit. He used to cook, buy it in powder, cook it, and smoke it. That's what was going on, you know. But that hit me after. I didn't know. Let me explain something real quick. For the street level dealer, crack cocaine was comparable to nothing. The high was so powerful, so quick, and for drugs, it was pretty economical. That the repeat business, the speed with which the money and the drugs changed hands, was a monumental shift. Uh, but, but you know, one of the dynamics, you know, crack changed dynamics. The price, the price drop, and you know, uh, changed dynamics. And then crack, when you know, when 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 they started selling in a vial and all that, you know, vials of crack and all that. That's really, that's you know, and it was it was like, uh, you know, and, and I think. This is what I, you know, from my observation. For example, when you sell powder coke, you know, say you buy, you buy powder coke, what do you do? You buy the powder coke, you go to wherever you're going to go, apartment, wherever, and you have to go ahead, go through the process of cooking it and all that, and just so then smoking it. But when you got, when you, you know, now you take that away. Now you provide crack already cooked, already in a little vial, ready to smoke. So you get people to come in and immediately they'll go in the car right around the corner or right there and smoke it right there and that's it. So, you know, now you got a crackhead out out there, <laughs> you know, stone as opposed to one that's in an apartment or in a little room somewhere 
smoking and cooking and stuff on his own stuff. Now you got people like on the go, on you know, instantly, you know, from the from from the from the vial to the pipe and boom, you know, you know, nonstop, you know, running around and you know, you know, I mean, you know, you've probably seen many videos or photos of seeing it yourself. People walking around with a crack pipe smoking, you know. Sure. Yeah. So you know, so so we went out from. From you know, you know, little, little, you know, from behind the scenes, quietly, you know, under behind closed door kind of thing, to to out in the open, you know, like nobody, who God don't give a fuck, I'm a crackhead, you know, that's it, you know, uh, sure, you know, and, and, and that, that's uh-huh. at that time, um, obviously, right? There's sort of this evolution of the police. And what was your analysis of how the police in Britain side of Bridgeport handled sort of the drug trade? Did you see how that yeah, l- changed? No, but you know it's different now. You know, if the police officers back then, if if the police officers today did what the police officers used to do back then, in a, you know, I mean, there was association with, you know, I mean, come on, we knew a lot of the uh, the, the cops. You know, we went to school with a lot of them. You know. Billy Chase, for example, Billy Chase was eligible to to infiltrate one because he wasn't known here, you know. Um, you know, he got you know his his identity became public pretty quick. You know, I mean, he was easy to identify. He used to walk around with his earrings that gave him away. Um, for example, um, yeah, but, he used but to walk police, around with what? what he, he used to walk around in his left ear, and that was a giveaway. You know, a black guy was. It was easy to spot, you know. Uh, you know, um, you know. In the description, clean shaven, you know, pretty looking, you know, pretty looking, you know, pretty boy kind of type. Um, you know, that's you know when you know uh, you know um, the description of, of you know you know you know. Keep in mind, he came in and then he started. It's not like he, he came in, set everybody up, and they picked everybody up at the same time. No. They would, he would, you know, do do an operation, set somebody up, you know, nail them, they get arrested. Next thing you know, then they move on to the next person, the next case, the next case. But every time you did one bus or you busted somebody and that person knew that you were the one who set them up, they didn't know who you were maybe exactly, but they could describe you, you know, and that's what was going on with Billy Chase. You know, um, pretty early, you know, he was already identified or described you know and even with the description even although a lot of people knew what the guy looked like some of the guys that i knew they he still nailed him with the earring still on you know to me that was always weird to me right because bridgeport at its core is really a small place right Uh uh-huh yeah if you have an undercover who's kind of like going in and out of these neighborhoods i guess the other thing you have to take into consideration is this is no one had really had cell phones. They didn't have computers. Exactly. You know, he would so he would not he would not be able to do what he did back then as easily, and it wouldn't have probably it would have been Mariano had a get together or a party or something like that at the house on Indian Avenue, and I was there and a lot of the guys were there. Now one of the reds, Juicy, um, um, and and then Billy Chase was there. Came, he came to the party there. And now Juicy had already heard about him. 
and he swore he in front of him, you know, Juicy confronted Billy Chase. And, you know, and, and he started telling him, look, you're undercover, Kyle. you're undercover, blah, 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 and this and that. So then it got to the point where he was denying and shit like that. So then Juicy challenged him and said, if you're not a cop, then go ahead and take a hit. He gave him, he gave him the 20, what, like a 20 or coke. And Billy Chase took a hit. That happened right there on Indian Avenue. He, I mean, he, I mean, he doesn't do that, or, but his cover was, you know, and, and still, still red, you know, to sore that he. Now, keep in mind that I saw him there that day. There, a little while later, I'm on State Street, driving down State Street, heading towards Park Avenue, right before the light, and there's like a green, uh, dark green, uh, Camry, Toyota Camry. Uh, that he was in, the, that's the car that he was driving at, at uh, around that time. Uh, and he had, he hit with the dark green Camry pulled up next to me. When, you know, and when I look like this, I see like the guy signaling at me, trying to get my attention. So when I look like, and I look at him and then I see, I, just, I see the black guy, you know, I see like that. I look at him and first, as soon as I saw him, I said, Billy Jane, then I look like real closer, I see the earring. So then he, he started like signal, like, like, you know, like putting his hand like that to his nose, like, you know, you got any coke or anything like that, you know. So then I looked at him and I'm looking at him and then I went like this and I stuck my hand out with my middle finger. He's <laughs> from my car, you know. I'm, I'm on the right side, I'm left side of the road, he's on the right side, okay. And I reached over like that with my finger, singing, I stuck my finger at him like that and I drove away. And how, how did, how did your sort of story within the drug trade end? You know, in a sense, obviously, you survived, right? Which a lot. Yeah, of no, I, 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 I survived. You know, I, I, uh, you know, everybody, everybody, you know, everybody say, you know, sometimes people ask if you've been to the military. I say, yeah, I, uh, I survived the uh, State Street Wars. You know, um, uh, you know, I, I, um, you know, I think one of my, my, my one of my. Uh, my biggest strength was, uh, you know, you know, being, you know, having graduated, you know, um, for some reason, I've always had fucking bad luck finding work, you know, um, you know, for, you know, despite being smart, despite, you know, despite being able, I was, you know, I, I, I you know, so I, you know, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't out like some of these guys, you know, you, you, know, you know, quit how you're ahead. And I was one of them, you quit while you're ahead, you know, um, you know, around the nineties, right around the nineties, an element is he started really getting ugly. Um, he started getting you know, you had different people moving into the neighborhoods, you know, coming in. The cowboys, real cowboys started popping up and uh and 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 it, it, it didn't look good, you know. I it, it wasn't it didn't went it, it it didn't end well with some of the people that I knew. A lot of them just didn't make it, you know. Um you know, I I, you, I could see I was you know, I was I was sober enough or whatever, you know, to to be able to step back and see where is it going. I was either gonna end up killing somebody for not because I want to go out killing, but you're forced to kill in situations in which you know there are cowboys out there and you know they're out there. You know they've been robbing you. They're they're out there to rob you and 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 perhaps even uh, take you out of the game. Uh, and in the '90s, that that you know it was. There was there was quite a few uh, groups who who were into that, you know, uh, you know. I guess, you know, they they figure that by force, you know, you, you kill this guy. Latin Kings, K 
came into the picture. Latin kings were, were one of the groups who, who were out there who came in and started taking uh, uh, over the streets by force, you know, by literally killing uh, uh, rivals or anybody and, and, and taking over the, the, the trades. Uh, you know, the, the crack houses, and, you know, the abandoned houses that, you know, the corners, every, anything where, or any area where where uh, there was a, a, a profitable uh, um, uh, corner or, or, or house where they could make quick money. And, you know, so they would move in and by force, you know, uh, you know, and take over. Um, I, among others, you know, that's what we did. We decided, hey, you know, it's, you know, quit while you're ahead, you know, uh, um, you know, or, or step back, quit, you know, relax, you know, let this whatever pass and come back later if you can or whatever or want to. Um, but it was a definitely a time around that 90. That was definitely the time to quit or get ready to die or get ready for a long prison sentence, you know. And that was, you know, the writing was very, very clear. Uh, clearly, you know, the writing was in the wall, you know. That's, you know, you got, you got to make a decision. The sooner you make that decision, the better for you. And that's what I did. I decided um, to just chill, you know. I, you know, I got a job. And one of the things I think that helped me a lot was, uh, um, I, I would say, Joe, for example, I, 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 I've always voted. I've always been in reading. I like to read and all that. And I got into politics in 19, by 1995, um, I had gotten elected to the 131st district. Um, the 131st district was run fucking down. This was one of the ugliest, worst, in six years, that district rap was able to be uh, um, the force behind the changes that took place in the 131st district. Uh, with, well, of course, that's with the, that's under the, the uh, first administration of Joe Gannon. Um, I think that one of the things that helped me a lot was the, you know when when the uh, city gave me a job, uh, you know, and, and I still have that job to this day. 20, 21, 22 years now. When Lenny Grimaldi told me about the story of Joel Gonzalez and working for the number one family, I knew it had to be a part of the story of Bridgeport and Billy Chase. But there was a part of Joel's story, after researching, that blew me away. On March 8th, 1994, Joel Gonzalez chopped off the index finger of his left hand on the steps the state capitol in Hartford to express his version of justice to violent gun users during a historic violent crime period in the city and state. Here's Joel explaining. That was uh, on March 8th, 1984. You know, this thing with, you know, to this day, you know, it, 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 it makes me... It, it, it would not now. Now I just it just in one ear and out the other. Now I don't even. I I heard it all. You know I just you know I, I guess I'm getting old. You know I just more laid back now. Don't really give a shit. You know, hear something like that. Oh, I've heard it before. You know, uh, you know. But uh, yeah, that was uh, 1984 uh, in the Connecticut State Capitol. Um, you know, keep in mind where I come from. I come from it was nothing. You know I, you know there was is you know gun. Gun just you know, for example, the number one family hardly well, hardly any of us ever messed with guns. But as the 
traffic, you know, as, as the business went and progressed and the money started coming in, you know, and before you know it, it was, we're talking a lot of money. Um, Clinton Avenue became to be known as a, a quick stop for anybody who, who, who wants to do an armed robbery and get a, a, a good a good amount of money, you know, in one robbery. Um, so we became targets, you know. You have people who come in, you know, come in and, you know, give, you, you know, give me a 25. Next year they pull a gun in your face and they take your drugs and your money, you know. And, you know, you know, and, and that's what happens. So what are you going to do? You're going to start arming, uh, you know, you know, put one guy lookouts and with guns, you know, and, 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 and not, you know, now if anybody tried anything, anything happened, you know, you have firepower, you know. Uh, so the guns, we were forced pretty much to use guns and possess guns, you know. Um, we didn't go out. I don't know anybody there at Clinton Avenue, especially the older guys, you know, the old crew. Go out and, you know, go anywhere to start trouble and start threatening people with no, you know. I mean, you came in there and you look for trouble, you pull out a gun or something like that. Um, then, you know, you, you're gonna, you, you, most likely you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have a gun battle on your hands, you know. Um, and that's what happened with Clinton Avenue. So then, you know, uh, gun, for some reason, I always, I never liked the guy. I, 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 I came close, accidental shooting. Act, being accidentally shot. One of them was, I remember Richard Crespo, Mariano's, one of Mariano's brothers, he passed away. He, uh, we were at the house across the street from where, you know, from Eddie Clinton Avenue. And this is before, you know, you know, we, we were, you know, selling drugs and all that, you know, but across the street and then Richard, well, somebody had a gun in, in the room and they were fucking around playing with the gun. Next thing you know, I was laying in one of the bed, we watching TV, and I looked like this, one of the guys had the gun, and next thing the fucking gun just went off, like right in front of my face. I almost got killed that day, you know, came inches, you know. There was other incidents, you know, like that, close calls, real close. I had one time, another friend, gun went off, so so damn close that the powder just felt like somebody just threw sand in your, in, you know, your face like that. I mean, um, and, the, and the ears, my ears were just... Fucking like, you know, um, you know, you know, there was, you know, guns, you know, you know, I had a lot of respect for guns. You know, I see a gun, you know, I hated to have it in my hands. I didn't, I just didn't like it. I just, I was always, you know, it, it is what it is. A gun, you know, a gun to me always. So anyway, um, and you know, even when I, when I, when I, you know, when I uh, straightened up, still gun was. You know the, the problem. You know, you know, gun is one problem. Drug is one problem. Gun is another. You can take drugs away, you're still gonna have a gun problem. Period. Because that's the, the, you know, that's you know, you don't see somebody throwing a a a, a, a rock of cocaine at you to, to no, <laughs> but they'll put a lead on you. You know, they, you know, they, they they can't hurt you with <laughs> with a kilo. They're gonna hit you with a kilo over the head. You know, they'll most likely hit you with a gun over the head. You know, um, you know, but so the gun will always always be there, even if you eliminate it. The, the 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 drugs and all that you know um you know so anyway i've always i always i mean you know, one of the things always have me always this 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 thing with politicians politicians always you know they, oh, we're gonna do this we're gonna do this we're gonna you know, to this day you keep hearing the cry oh, 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 we, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of crime we're gonna get, get rid of it we're gonna stop gun violence no you're fucking not you know it's gonna be here with us for a long time <laughs>